Have you ever been um, a part of something that's to- that you're totally out of control of, that you realize is, is there is nothing in the world that you can absolutely do about it? You are at the sort of, the, the, the kind of mercy of whatever the situation is. You know, I, I think I told a few of you this. I was recently, I've been gone a little bit this summer, I was recently on a plane to Pittsburgh. And we were, I was going to speak at this conference in the mountains up there, high as 75 every day, by the way. It was really amazing. I called Meredith. I was like, I think I'm going to go run this afternoon at 75. She's like, it's 109. I was like, sorry. You know. But we, um, we, were, we were coming in for landing. It was like 11 o'clock at night. And we were coming in to land. And, and I say we, meaning me just being passenger on the plane. And we were all in there, and we were coming into land, and, you know, we had done all that. Everyone was sitting, the stewardess was sitting, everyone was buckled up, and you could see the ground. We were that close. And the pilot jerked the plane straight up to the sky. I mean to the point where everybody started screaming, like everybody except me, because oh, I'm a dude. I didn't scream. You know, I was like, it's all under control. I got, you know. But my heart is beating. The pilot literally takes this thing up to the sky to the point where it was very alarming. And he kind of pulls that plane skyward, and, and, you know, I've flown enough to realize that's just not what's supposed to happen, right? And so uh, he comes on about five minutes later as we kind of are just shooting skyward, and he says, ladies and gentlemen, he goes, ladies and gentlemen, this is your pilot. And they all talk in that same pilot voice, which is kind of interesting. I think you have to learn that when you go. But he's like, ladies and gentlemen, this is your pilot. Uh, regret to inform you that while we were coming in for a landing, we had a light come on, and we're going to need to circle up here till we figure out what that is. So me not being an expert in aviation was like, well, the mine comes on sometime in my car. If you just ignore it, it'll go away. <laughs> Maybe next time you start it, it just doesn't come on. And so, uh, but, you know, I'm thinking, well, that's not good. We're going to circle around until we figure out what it is. I mean, isn't that what your little thing's supposed to tell you what it is? Well, we circle around, and everyone's getting really nervous now because we've been up there now circling for like 25 minutes. And he comes back on, and he says, he says well, we think we figured out what the problem is. He says, we have lost our ability to steer. He said, we can steer in the air by rudder, but we can't steer when we're coming in for a landing. Um, you know, whatever the little wheel system is there, you know, steering wheel, whatever, however you drive a plane. I don't have any idea. They don't let me up there, right? He says, well, we can't do that. And, uh, and he said, so we're going to have to make an emergency landing. And he goes, I don't want anyone to be alarmed, but when we come in for landing, there's going to be a lot of emergency vehicles around. They're going to be coming in. And so meanwhile, everyone is starting to kind of freak out because... I mean, steering seems like a pretty big deal. Like, it, it, it just seems like something you'd really want to have. And so, but we're circling, and so I'm thinking, you know, I mean, we can, we obviously can make left turns, and so we're doing something. And, but everyone's starting to get kind of really antsy. And the, the lady sitting next to me, there was a, a guy at the window, a lady sitting next to me, and right here, she goes, well, this, this is, you know, this is now our reality. And I was like, well, obviously, this is all of our reality. But she was like, this is, I mean, we can't do anything. And she said, whatever happens now just happens. And I said, yeah, you know, it does. And, and for some reason, you know, everyone was, was relatively calm, but you could just feel this crazy tension. And so we start coming in for approach, and you can look out the windows, and you can see these emergency vehicles just kind of racing up to the runway. And I'm thinking, wow, this is, if I wasn't on this plane, this would be awesome, right? I mean, but I'm on it, and I don't, this is not that awesome. And so... So I'm sitting there, you know, trying not to be kind of freaked out by this whole thing. And, uh, and the pilot comes on and says, you know, as we come in, they're going to stop us on the runway. And uh, we're going to sit there for a while. They're going to have to examine the plane and make sure, you know, there's nothing flame on fire or whatever. And, and then they're going to tow us in. And so, you know, we're all, it's kind of like if we are able to land kind of deal, right? Like that's all like plan B, right? First the plan is just kind of we're going to kind of put her on the ground, see what happens. So 
So we do, and he's real calm and great, and we land, and of course everything just sort of works out, and, and these, these uh, emergency vehicles come screaming over to the plane, and they put up these, these fi- they close the Pittsburgh airport, they put up these huge field lights, and they shine, I mean, like, light as day, shining on the plane. And you kind of look out the window, and all the firemen are out there, or the emergency workers are out there looking at the plane. We sat there for like an hour, as they looked at every little nook and cranny, making sure there was no kind of like flammable liquids on there, you know, and, and I, I didn't even get to jump out on the slide, which I thought was kind of lame. They towed us in, and we had to get on a, a jetway. But I remember as we were coming in, I was thinking, you know, the reality of my situation is that I'm totally out of control. There's nothing I could do. I mean, I could go up to the cockpit, and I could knock on the door, and I could tell him I'm going to take us home. But it's not really going to happen. We would talk about a different home if that were the case, right? <laughs> There's nothing we could do. And, and, you know, I was really struck. I was going to be doing something different this morning, but, but really yesterday afternoon, God just really began to press on my heart the, this idea of reality. And not reality in terms of what is real, tangible, touchable, but the reality of our, of our spiritual condition. You know, the, I think one of the great tragedies of growing up in a, in a culture which is, is very churched, I mean, we, we all kind of have at least grown up in a Western culture, most of us, I won't venture to say all of us, have grown up in a very Western churched culture. We're okay with the idea of God, the idea of Jesus, we're comfortable, churches are on every corner. Even if we, we didn't live in that scenario, we're, we're comfortable with the church setting. And we all kind of grew up there. And one of the great tragedies of growing up in a, in a church culture is that I think for a lot of us, we don't have any real understanding of what it means to be saved. Because if you grew up in a mainline setting at all, you probably didn't hear, hear that term at all because we associate ideas like sa- being saved or born again with kind of you know, uh, extremists. And if you're not a, a church person at all, then, then you really don't want to have to deal with that term saved. And so we just kind of put that out of our minds and we kind of live in the reality of, of whatever our little world says. But the truth is, is that we have to come to grips with this idea of our condition. We have to come to grips with the idea that the Bible talks about salvation all the time. And I think the reason most of us don't like to deal with it is because we don't like to admit that if we're going to need to be saved, and there's something we have to be saved from. And most of us don't like to deal with that. Like we don't want to actually kind of dive into the reality of, of who I am and what I'm struggling from or dying from. I was visiting with a pastor friend recently, um, a local guy who I, who I really love, a neat guy, but we were having a conversation, this is a couple of months ago, beginning of the summer, we were having a conversation about, we were, he was preaching on something, we were talking about sin. And he told me this, he said, you know, here's my thing on sin, is that I believe that we all make mistakes and we all sin and we do things that displease God. He goes, I believe that. But, but I believe that humans are, are essentially good and that we're not really sinners or sinful, we just make mistakes. We just sin. And I almost didn't know what to say. Because, I mean, my logic tells me that if I rob a bank, I am a bank robber. I can't go, oh, you know, I've robbed the bank. But listen, it was just one time deal. Um, it was a mistake. If you rob a bank, you're a bank robber. If you sin, you're a sinner. But, but this, you know, in spite of what I think is the perfect logic of that argument, you really have to deal with this truth. The Bible actually is much more specific about it than even my line of thinking. The Bible tells us that in our sin, The reality of who we are as sinners and sinful people is that we are absolutely and totally dead in our sin. The Bible actually tells us that we're not sick, we're not dying, we're not hurting, we're not uncomfortable. The Bible tells us that because of our sin, we are dead. We have no hope. We are desperate. We are totally out of control. Much the same way I was sitting on that plane. There is nothing that I could have done to save myself. The Bible actually plays it out in that same type of categories and says, listen, you are dead. That is the reality of your condition. And it's actually a subject that Jesus taught on a lot. 
He talked about the reality of our condition and our desperate need to be saved. So this morning, we're going to take a look at the book of Luke, chapter 7. If you've got it, I want you to turn there. There's Bibles kind of all around you. The way our Bibles work here, Divine, is that if you don't own one, keep this one. It's yours to have. Um, I know where I can get more, so keep it, hang on to it, give it to someone. If not, leave it there, and we can use it next week. But we're, we like to look at the Word together, so you know that I'm making this stuff up. And uh, we can spend a little bit of time talking through what I think is one of the most amazing pictures in Scripture, is our verses in Luke chapter, 30, or chapter 7, verse 36. So before we do that, though, before we turn to God's Word, let's take a moment and let's just pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place. We thank you for um, just the stillness in this room to be able to gather in the presence of your word and open it and look into what you are saying to our hearts. God, we recognize that every one of us has to at some point in time deal with the reality of our condition. And so, God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning, challenging us, Father, to uh, recognize our desperate need for you. Take just a moment in your own heart and just ask God to speak to you today. God, just say, God, just speak to me this morning. Pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you, even if you don't know their name at all. Just, just pray for them. Just ask God to, uh, to move in their life. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we ask that you would um, open our hearts to your truth. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, and so God, teach us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So book of Luke chapter 7, this is, a, this is one of my favorite interactions in all of Scripture, and I have a lot of favorites, this is my favorite right now, um, and I love it, and, it, and I'll tell you why in just a second. But let's look at Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, we'll read down through 50 together, and then we'll just see what it has to say. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And she stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, is this, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and the kind of woman she is. That she is a sinner. Then Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other owed 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will, be, will love him more? Well, Simon replied, I suppose the one who has the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned towards the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house, and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. And therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who has been given little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin. So Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now I'll tell you why I love this story in a minute, but, but listen to this encounter that happens. It's really fascinating. So 
you know, Jesus was a big deal. Everywhere he went, we talk about this a lot, people gathered, they wanted to be a part of it, they wanted to experience it, um, they wanted to be um, around him. All types of people, from the religious elite all the way down to the broken and, and the hurting. They all wanted to be around Jesus, and so when he showed up somewhere, they all showed up in droves. Well, there was a certain Pharisee, who we learned his name is Simon, who invited Jesus to his house to have dinner. Now, Pharisees were a big deal as well. I mean, they were the sort of the religious elite. They were the keepers of the law. They, they held on to the oral tradition. They held on to truth. They were the example of what religion looked like for the people, both outwardly and supposedly from the inside. They, there were about 6,000 of them all over the area, and they wore their religion on the outside of their lives for the world to see. And they were the example. And so, you know, they were kind of a big deal. And so Simon, the Pharisee, invites Jesus to come have dinner at his house. And so Jesus does, and he's reclining at the table, which they often did, which is kind of like this sort of laying down posture at the table, eating. And it says that when a woman... Right, who was living a sinful life in that town. And there's really no other way to put this except using the phrase that she was a prostitute. She, I mean, you can look any way you want to, but we know that she lived that sinful life in that town. It's written in there clearly that she is a mess. And she was a sinful person living in that town. She heard that Jesus was having dinner at this guy's house, and so she went. And it says that she shows up at his house and she sees Jesus and she brings this alabaster jar of perfume and she begins to weep while she's standing behind him and her tears begin to fall on his feet. She begins to wipe those tears up with her hair, kissing his feet over and over and over again. Then she begins to pour perfume on his feet. And, and Simon, the guy that's kind of in charge of this little dinner party, it's his house. I mean, he's appalled. And he's appalled because this woman who is a prostitute, who he knows, they all know her is sitting there touching the feet of this supposed prophet, and he's saying to himself in his head, you know, or, or at least under his breath, going, I mean, I can't believe this guy. I mean, if he actually knew, he was a prophet, he actually knew who was touching him, this, this woman, he would tell her to get away because he would know what kind of woman she was. Because as a Pharisee, to even come in contact with a woman like this would have made him unclean. So he wouldn't have anything to do with her because then he would be unclean because she was unclean. If this Jesus was some kind of prophet, then he should have known that. So this woman kissing and, and rubbing the dirt off Jesus' feet with her tears. And, and Simon the Pharisee, the picture of religion, kind of frustrated and, and muttering under his breath or at least thinking to himself, saying things like, I cannot believe it. And then Jesus, who of course is not prophet enough to know who's touching him, answers Simon, right, who's not really talking. He answers him, and he says, Simon, I've got, a, I got something I want to tell you, which I'm sure Simon over here, because this is, of course, where he was, surprised, going, oh, okay, I, what do you have to tell me, teacher? And he says, let me tell you a story. Suppose there's two people, and they both owed money to a certain moneylender, this exact same one. One owed 50 denarii, and a denarii is about one coin that's about one day's wages. So one owed, you know, 50 days' wages, and one owed 500 days' wages. But the moneylender knew that neither of them had the money to pay him back. Both of them could not pay back this debt, so he just cancels them both. He says, you know what? Neither of you owe me money. And he says, Simon, which of these people is going to be uh, more excited or love this person more? And Simon says, well, you know, uh, it makes more sense, the, the one that obviously owes more. And Jesus says, that's right. You know, you've judged correctly. He says, listen, let me tell you this. When I came into your house, you didn't even give me water to clean my feet. You know, you didn't give me a kiss, you didn't greet me, you didn't give me oil for my head. Yet this woman, this woman, 
has not stopped kissing my feet. She is bathing my feet with her tears, and she is pouring perfume on them. He said, listen, her many sins are forgiven because she's loved much. And the crowd's kind of, a bunch of people are start talking, going, who is this guy that can forgive sins? I mean, it's crazy. And Jesus looks at her and he says, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Now, there's a lot going on here, but I love this interaction because this is the Jesus that I see in Scripture that is just so amazingly radical because he makes worlds collide. Now, we like to think Jesus was a radical because he ate with tax collectors and sinners, which is somewhat true. But really, Jesus was a radical because he took those worlds and he smashed them together. Because if you think about this scenario for a minute, it really is amazing. I mean, here's this guy, this really big deal Pharisee, inviting this really big deal Jesus to a dinner party, or at least to have dinner where he can ask him either a lot of questions or try and trap him or kind of show off how smart he is or or whatever they were going to do. Right, but it was a party for the elite. It was a gathering to come eat dinner in my house. And in comes this, this woman, this mess of a person who lived a sinful life that everybody knew about. I mean, imagine if that's your scenario. Imagine if you're kind of a big deal. None of us in here are a big deal. But imagine that some of us, one of us in here was a pretty big deal. And we had somebody coming into town that was another big deal. And we invited them to our house and we got everything ready. And we organized our home and we invited special people over to meet this other big deal. And in comes this person. We all knew her. It's kind of a small town. Everybody's been talking about her behind her back. Everybody knows what she does. And comes this prostitute into your dinner party where you're dressed and you pulled out the china and you have laid things out for this person. And in she comes causing this crazy commotion. She's weeping and she's scrubbing the feet of this guest who doesn't seem to be minding. She broke a jar of perfume. She's rubbing it on his feet. Everyone's staring. And you, first of all, can't believe that she's in your house. And second of all, you don't understand really what's happening. I mean, imagine if you're the woman. I mean, think about that scenario for a moment. Think about the type of courage or struggle you must be in to actually break into that dinner party. I mean, you want to talk about a crazy sets, crazy sets of eyes that are on your life. Imagine that culture in that scenario, a group of picture-perfect religious men gathered in a home to eat a meal. You know exactly who you are. You know exactly what you do for a living. You cried yourself to sleep a thousand times. You knew that the world thought your life was unclean, and you knew it was. You knew that you couldn't be greeted in public or touched in public, yet you crossed the threshold into this person's home. What kind of desperation drives a person into that scenario and then to fall at the feet of this big deal and begin to weep on his feet? The picture of Jesus here is amazing because he crashes and collides these worlds together. He challenges the religious to think about what it means to truly love God. And we could look at this story from like a thousand different angles. But really, I look at it from the perspective of this woman, and I see some things that that really resonate with this conversation that I had with my pastor friend about our condition, about the reality of the condition we live in. And there's two things that I really see in her life that I think are worth mentioning, and maybe another time we'll, we'll visit from a the uh, Simon's point of view, because it's really fascinating that way too. But, but thinking about this woman, because I really think there's something amazing here. Because there's a point in her life where she really recognizes, I think, her own need. You see, Jesus tells a story. He says, look, there were two people. Both of them were absolutely and totally in debt. One was 50 days in debt, and one was 500 days in debt. One of them owed thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, and one owed much less. 
but they were both in debt, equally in debt. But see, only one person in the story seems to recognize the fact that they are in debt or they do have a need. And really, the most dangerous type of debt is the kind we refuse to acknowledge, right? I mean, the the kind that we kind of pretend isn't there. But she recognized, in the story at least, that she was in need, or that story that Jesus told that she was in debt or that person was in debt. You know, it's what drove that woman, I think, into Simon's house. She recognized that she had this sort of desperation. There is no way that I can crawl out of this mess on my own, that I have lived this way for so long. That I have no other options. That I am deeply and desperately in need. And that person that's in debt, 500 days worth of, you know, wages is recognizing that I can't work my way out of this. No amount of going back to work and working a little extra overtime is ever going to pay back this mess. I am done. And Jesus equates that person with this woman because I believe spiritually she recognized that she was in the exact same place. Look, I am bankrupt. I've made a series of decisions that people know about and that no one knows about, and I cannot get out of it on my own. I am forever and forever will be this prostitute. This is who I am, and I'm dying. I think she recognizes her need, and in that story, not only do both people have the same debt, right? Neither of them can alleviate the the situation. Neither of them can take themselves out of it. And I find that remarkable because... On some level, the second person in that story probably has the mentality that if I just work hard enough, I can fix it. I mean, if I just get after it, I can pay this back. But the key line in that story is that neither of them had the money to do so. See, one was in debt by 50, one by 500, but both of their needs were exactly the same. Neither of them could solve it. And I think that there's a recognition this woman has that she just can't do it. There is no way. And for a lot of us, we live in scenarios where we think if we just stop this behavior or just don't do this one thing or just think somewhat differently, that eventually we will remedy our own situation. That as I talk with my pastor friend, that if I just kind of stop that one little sin, that eventually I'm just not going to be a sinner. I mean, I can control my life enough to to understand my own condition as really good with a few mistakes sprinkled in. The problem is that what Jesus lays out is that it's not about just a few sprinkled mistakes. The reality is that you are totally in debt and are dying. And there is no way out. Period. That's it. The Bible lays this out over and over and over again. And yet you have Simon, the picture of religion, and this woman who could not be more opposite of everything he was. And Jesus puts him in the exact same category, which would have been infuriating. But I believe she recognized her need. And then I believe she begins to overflow with passion. Because, you know, this is not a pretty picture. I mean, if you really look at it, it's kind of a a nice little Bible picture. But if you really look at it, it is not pretty. I mean, true passion, emotion rarely is. It is a a mess. I mean, imagine this woman. She comes in knowing full well who she is, knowing full well that everyone will wonder why she's there, knowing full well that every finger will point at her. If she even brushes against someone of this religious stature, they become unclean, and she becomes a public spectacle. 
Yet something, some kind of desperation in her drives her to see this Jesus, to cross this threshold into this home and to find herself at his feet with this jar of perfume, which has probably covered up her own sinfulness morning after morning after morning. And she comes to this Jesus, this person, this one that she's heard all the stories about, the one that's cast out demons and fed people and raised the widow's son who was dead. And she begins to weep, not cry, not be sad, but she begins to weep. And I believe that she recognizes in that moment, in all these moments, exactly who she is and who she's in the presence of. It's not an uncommon experience for people in Scripture when they come face to face with Jesus to either fall at his feet or be completely and totally broken. We see it happen in Peter, we see it happen in all kinds of people. But she comes in the presence of Jesus and she just begins to weep. I mean, this is not a a sort of a a played out emotion like, oh, have forgiveness on me. This is just sobbing to the point where her tears begin to wet his feet. Now, I don't know when the last time is you cried that hard. Maybe it was recently. Maybe it's been decades. But it takes a lot of tears to wet something. This is not blot away your tears kind of crying. This is, I am an absolute and total mess in desperation, in dire need. I have no place else to go. I am dying. And the tears are flowing from me because I am in recognition of exactly who I am in the presence of exactly who you are. And of course, people at that point in time walked around the countryside in these sandals and their feet were filthy. And her tears begin to mix with the dirt on his feet. And so she does the only logical thing, which is she takes her hair and she tries to just clean them off. Here's this woman whose sin is so well known, scrubbing the dirt off the feet of the Son of God with her tears in her hair. And then she takes her jar of perfume and she begins to pour it on his feet. I mean, this is, this is passion. This is remarkable. It's not that kind of passion that says, yay, God, I'm so excited. It's the kind of passion that says, I'm totally broken. I cannot do this anymore. And Jesus, of course, tells that story, looks at Simon, he says, listen, here's the deal. These simple acts of hospitality you didn't even recognize or do. You didn't even offer me a little bit of water to clean my feet. You didn't even greet me with a kiss. And if you really thought I was a prophet, you didn't even put oil on my head to, to kind of show me honor or respect or anoint me. Yet this woman, she's lost her life here. You know, the reality of our spiritual condition is wrapped up in, in this scenario, not just in who the woman is, but in the truth of what Jesus is saying, which is whether or not you feel like you've lived a perfect, morally good life, or at least somewhat good, never killed anybody, never done any of these kind of things, or you're at the bottom of where your rope is, and you have done it, and you have lived it, and you are a mess, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The reality is that none of them, neither of them, none of us, can repay that debt. We are in desperate and dying need for Jesus. Which puts you and I in the exact same scenario as this woman. Now there's a reality there for me that's really strong. Because I know me. I I don't sin. I'm I'm a full-blown mess of a sinner. I'm a sinful disaster. I know that I have no hope except to be rescued and saved. That I am dying. The question really 
for, for me this morning, or, or for all of us this morning, is this, is, is do we really recognize our own need? Or have you created a life scenario where you can kind of manage your sin, manage your struggle, manage the things that you think, manage the mistakes that you make, hide them, bury them, put them away enough to where they don't bother you? When's the last time you came face to face with the reality that Jesus, Savior, God, Redeemer of your heart and soul, last time you came face with that picture of God and the reality of your sin? See, what this woman realized is that those worlds, they don't coexist. I think that very few of us are truly broken by our sin. We've begun to live lives that we can manage it, hide it, implement it, wash it away, pretend it's not there, explain it away, whatever category you want to use. And so it makes us feel like our condition's really not that bad. Hey, after all, I'm only 50 days in debt. A little bit of hard work, a little bit of stop doing this, a little bit of stop doing that, and I'll be right back where I need to be. The reality is it's a lie. We are desperately in need of Jesus. When's the last time you allowed your sin to break your heart? To absolutely come before God and just say, I am a mess and I am deeply in need of you. See, the idea of what it means to be saved is not some kind of radical Christian extremist point of view. It's the reality that every single one of us needs a Savior, period. And really, this table that we're going to take part in this morning is this perfect picture of radical collision between the amazing love of God and the reality of your sinfulness and my sinfulness. Because my sin and your sin sent Jesus to the cross. But the picture of this table is that God loved you and he loved me so much that he died so that we might know him. Yet we take part in things like this, like this Christian ritual or this Christian ritual of worship with no movement in our heart, no passion in our heart. It becomes a habitual, a habitual idea that we participate in. How can that possibly be? If we truly recognized our condition, our desperate need, we would realize that this is the single greatest picture of a God who is radically in love with us and wants to redeem our lives. And that every time we participated in this or participated in that or woke up in the morning, it would be a reminder that I am totally and desperately in need of Jesus today. And that there are things in my life that I have got to fall on my feet and weep over. Jesus looks at that woman at the very end of the story and he says, listen, your sins are forgiven. Which is amazing because from a scriptural standpoint, no one has the ability to forgive sins except God. Which would have thrown these Pharisees into an absolute tailspin. But he doesn't care. He looks right at this woman. He says, your sins are forgiven. He says it again. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. And one of the things that's really powerful about this passage is this. I believe that the woman's passion was not was not to be forgiven, but because she was forgiven. See, when she came into the presence of Jesus, the person that she'd heard so much about, that she'd seen the stories, that had done the miracles, when she walked into his presence, she recognized who she was. It was not a pleading of saying, Jesus, forgive me. It was a brokenness in face of the true reality. And Jesus' response was to free her. There's a big difference. Oftentimes we plead with God for forgiveness. The reality is that God wants to forgive us. We've just got to lay ourselves at his feet 
and be broken enough to say, God, I need you. Because the ultimate picture of surrender and sacrifice is laying at the feet of Christ and just saying, I can't. I have to have you. You know, this picture of this table is really that. And this morning, we come face to face with the reality of our own sinfulness. When we take part in this small meal, this reminder that God loved you and I so much in the middle of our sinfulness, in the middle of all the mistakes that we've made, the things that are both public and the things that are private that no one will know about. We need a Savior. And this is that picture. This morning, my challenge is that we participate in this meal together. This wouldn't be some kind of habitual thing that you do as part of your Christian experience, but that you would come face-to-face with your reality, with your condition, and with your need. And that just maybe, as you took part in this this morning, this piece of worship, you would be confronted by the fact that, man, in the presence of Jesus, I am a total mess, and I need a Savior.